It's cutting into your exercise time. It's stabbing you in the back nine. And it's attacking your peace of mind. It's pain, and it's getting in between you and the life you want to live. CBD Medic targets your pain at its source. It's fast-acting relief with active OTC ingredients, plus the added benefits of THC-free hemp oil. Get back to your life with CBD Medic, available online and at CVS. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This week's episode of Beyond Reason is brought to you by Nodakian Studios. If you want a piece of fine pottery or a painting to die for, check out Nodakian Studios at etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Nodakian Studio. Welcome to Beyond Reason. A show for those who dare to have an open mind. Now here's your host, Justin Cancellari. Hey everybody, welcome to a brand new Beyond Reason, the show for those who dare to have an open mind. I am your host, Justin Cancellari, and tonight I've got a very interesting show for you. I'm bringing on Duncan Lunin. Duncan has been a full-time writer since 1970, as well as a researcher, speaker, broadcaster, editor, critic, tutor, and other aspects of the written, sung, and spoken word. As of August 2018, he has published nine books, most recently The Elements of Time and the paperback edition of Starfield. He's contributed to another 34 books and published 38 stories, nearly 1,500 articles. His main field is astronomy and space flight. He also writes science fiction and has a broad range of other interests, particularly ancient and medieval history and folk music. Tonight, I'm going to be bringing him on to talk about his book, Children from the Sky. Duncan, welcome to Beyond Reason this evening. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I'm having you on to talk about the book Children from the Sky. Uh, before we get in depth with it, I was just curious, what got you started doing research for this book? It goes back a long way. Um, in the 1960s, when I was at university, I, I was doing a degree in English and philosophy backed by science subjects at that time. And in English, I was, um, um, because I changed faculties from science to arts, I found that I was having to do the, all of the history of, of literature papers. And in the one covering the Elizabethan and Jacobean period, uh, one of the set texts was The Anatomy of Melancholy by Robert Burton, which is a huge, huge work the Everyman edition that I was using ran to three volumes. Um, it's basically a medical a medical um, book, a, a compendium, if you like, of um, everything he knew in that field. But Burton was a Renaissance man, and he put down everything he knew about everything. And, uh, you know, and in his time, you could just about know all there was to know. Um, right in the middle, central section of volume two of the three-volume edition, he puts down everything he knows about meteorology and astronomy in a section which he calls a digression of the air, but also includes space. Um, he's very excited particularly by the fact that um, Kepler and Galileo have proved that uh, the planets are moving in independent orbits. They are not encased in solid crystalline spheres. Mm -hmm. uh, therefore, space travel could be possible. He immediately jumps to that conclusion. And he's also jumped to the conclusion that if they are worlds in their own right, they must be inhabited because God wouldn't have created them otherwise. And, um, and then comes this great throwaway line where he says, that, therefore, there must be people in Venus and in Mars. And it may be that those green children that fell from the sky that Nubrigensis writes of in his time came from thence. And this just jumped off the page at me. It's um, looking at it, it is bang in the center of the central section of this whole 
huge work. It does suggest that Norton knew more about it than this throwaway reference in uh, contains. Newburgensis was William of Newborough, who's considered to be a, a reliable 12th century source. And um, uh, the footnotes tell you that the the story is also told in different um, in different form by uh, Ralph Coggeshall, who is a, another reliable historian of the time. And um, so I marked it down for future reference, and I didn't I didn't pursue it for quite a few years. And in fact, it was uh, a conversation with the late Professor Archie Roy um, on a, a different subject altogether that put me in mind of it and decided me to, uh, to, to it was, the time had come to get into it in depth. And um, I had been asked to cover a conference in London organized by the British, what was then the British National Space Center, now the UK Space Agency, mm. on the what became the Rosetta mission to uh, the comet that has just um, um, ended just a year or so back. Um, but at that time, it was still on the, on the, very much on the drawing board and wasn't certain whether the European Space Agency would commit to it. And so I... Uh, I Pondered my story after the conference to the Glasgow Herald. And then I went up to East Anglia and I went to the village of Woolpit where this um, incident with the Green Children had supposedly occurred. And I, I didn't expect to get anything more than just some local colour for an article. But I had got together beforehand with a historian friend and worked out a list of questions. So I was made very welcome at Woolpit. Uh, they opened up the local history museum out of season and um, generally tried to tried to help me out as best they could. But in reply to my questions, people kept saying, you'd have to go to the county records office for that kind of thing. So I went back into Bury St. Edmunds, joined the, the county archive research network, and this being still the early 90s, they then pointed me to the card index uh, relating to the filing cabinet uh, and said, okay, tell us what you want to see. And uh, five hours later, exhausted, starving, and dehydrated, I, I reeled out into Bury St. Edmund's Market with my, my head full of what I had discovered because I, I had found enough in that time to convince me that... Um, not only had this really happened, um, but that um, you know, the particular line of inquiry I was following obviously had not been followed or not very far by anyone else because I was finding answers that uh, nobody else seemed to know. So that was it. That started me um, on it. And, you know, and I spent the next 10 years on it before I wrote the book. Wow. So doing the research and uh, getting in-depth with it, I mean, science in the 12th century when these kids were, were discovered wasn't what we would call science today, but was there any uh, experiments done on the kids or anything to try and find out if there was like a, a biological explanation other than otherworldly? Well, what happened initially was they, they were quite roughly treated um, we, sh we should emphasize what the big difference with them was. Although they were human in every apparent, almost every apparent respect, they, um, they spoke a language nobody recognized um, and wore clothing of a color and material never seen before. Both of those are stranger than you might think. Woolpit was not isolated. It was um, an aspiring market town on what was then the major pilgrim route in, it, in England. So in effect, tourists from Europe would have been passing through the village all the time. The, the villagers would have known how to offer a bed for the night, a meal and a drink, and probably every language spoken in Europe. And, uh, and they would have seen a very wide variety of clothing from people of all, all kinds of different social, social conditions. Um, so the fact that both the clothing and the language were unrecognizable is immediately striking. But the major thing was that they were colored green all over. And it seems to have been 
very quickly discovered that they were green all over. They seemed to have been quite roughly treated to begin with. They were stripped and put on exhibition. And it wasn't until they were showing signs of starvation and possi possibly of, of exposure as well that it occurred to people that they might need to eat. Uh, at which point, again, very un very unusually, they, they refused all the food they were offered. And somewhere about this point, common sense kicked in, and they were taken to the home of a landowner called Richard de Kellner. Um, he's very important, um, but very hard to trace. We'll come, we'll come back to him. We need to come back to him. He's a key figure in the whole thing. Um, but um, the, the major thing was that they still wouldn't eat. And it wasn't until the bean harvest began, which um, tells you the time of year. Um, you can pin this down to late July quite accurately. Um, they recognized the color of the bean plants. They didn't recognize the plants themselves. They didn't know which part was edible. But they, um, by signs, indicated that they wanted to, to get the plants and they had to be shown which part they could eat. Um, but as time went on, eventually they were persuaded onto bread and um, to a, a more normal human um, diet for the time. And they were, of course, in a, in a very good position here. De Kalner was a powerful, powerful and wealthy man. They could eat, they had a, a wide variety of food to choose from, which makes it all the more extraordinary that at first they wouldn't touch it. Mm. And so time passed. They lost the green color. And I'm quoting again from the the Latin text, it says, um, it seemed to the wise, when they had learned our manner of speaking, it seemed to the wise that they might be christened, and even that was done. And at that point, curiously enough, again, the whole thing goes into formal Latin. I had, I had realized that I couldn't trust modern translations. I was going to have to do my, my own. I did, dedicated the book to the principal teacher of Latin at my old school who gave me the the grounding in this. But um, what I realized at this point was that it goes into the accounts, both accounts, Williams and Ralphs, go into formal Latin. Um, and where they're saying, um, she, where modern translators are saying she said and they said, it's actually gave evidence and swore on oath. So I rang a friend of mine who has had a diploma in theology from the Catholic College of Cardinals. And I said to him, have you any idea what this is about? And he said, oh, yes, he says, any churchman of the time would have recognized it. In fact, everybody knows that now. So I said, well, I'm sorry, I don't. What are you talking about? And he said, even today in the Roman Catholic Church, a christening in controversial circumstances must be preceded by an inquisitio, which is a formal hearing conducted by a bishop. Now, by that time, I was far enough into the story that I very quickly realized um, who and what was going uh, was involved and what was going on here. Um, and one of the major clues to that is that um, the first question they were asked is, who and from whence are you? And this is very clever. Because they replied, we are people of the land of St. Martin. And in modern times, everybody has been tre treating that as the name of the place that they came from. But any, any educated man reading it in the, in the original chronicles at the time would have got, got the point. The land of St. Martin turns out to be the Essex property of the Church of St. Martin's Le Grand. It's identified as Terra Sancti Martini and block capitals in the Doomsday Book. Best place to hide something is in plain sight. Um, the thing about it was that St. Martin's Le Grand was the principal sanctuary in England. It stood next to St. Paul's. It was under the Bishop of London, as was Coggeshall Abbey, where Ralph of Coggeshall was, was to write down his version of the story. So everything clicked. Anyone reading that at the time would have got it. They would have, they would have twigged that it was the Bishop of London who was conducting the hearing. 
And the Bishop of London was a very powerful and influential man and a very strong supporter of King Henry II. He backed Henry II right through the the Beckett affair and its consequences, which were still resonating. Um, if he was involved in this, it's clear that the king was taking an interest in something big was going on. In fact, this is where you start to realize that the whole incident of the Green Children is just the tip of a much bigger iceberg. Anyway, they say, we are, they're saying, we are people of the land of St. Martin. It's not whence, where, where have you come from? It's who are you? And what they're saying is, obviously they've been rehearsed. Somebody's watching and this is what they've been told to say. Um, essentially, they're saying, we are already under your protection. But the bishop pretends not to know that. He says, um, oh, that sounds all right. Do, you, do they believe in our saviour there? And the girl very quickly replies, oh, yes, you can't see the place for churches, which is... Uh, Again, I suspect what you've been told to say. And the bishop's next question is, does the sun rise or set there? And all they have to say is yes, and they're home free, because it was believed in medieval times that there was no sun in fairyland. And instead, they couldn't bring themselves to lie, and they said no, and launched into a description of a country of permanent twilight separated by a very broad river from a country of permanent sunlight. They're talking about a planet with a trapped rotation and they are literally living in the twilight zone, which is where that expression comes from. Um, and Burton, of course, knew enough Renaissance astronomy to know that those conditions couldn't be found on Earth, which was why he suggested that the children had come from another planet and describe them as having fallen from the sky, even though they came out of a, a hole in the ground at, at Wilpert. So, um, yeah, this is uh, where I began to realize that uh, I was definitely onto something big. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, there was, um, as it turned out, a great, a great deal more to learn. Now, when you said they they were all green. Was it their hair, their eyes, everything, or was it just their skin? Well, everything, apparently. Um, I, I have talked to people who are into theatrical makeup and um, uh, and this kind of thing, and um, conjurers as well. And what essentially they said is um, there would have been traveling players and, um, and the like passing through the village, um, people would have been familiar with makeup and how it's applied and how, how it works. They, to be described as green all over, they would have to be green all over to the roots of their hair and the inside of their mouth. And, you know, and obviously something very unusual. Now you said when they, they saw the green beans, they recognized the color, so that's when they started eating. And eventually they lost the color of, of green from their skin at that point was was it being um, were, were they being researched at all as to what could cause that like I said I, I know science back then was not thing it was more of like a witchcraft thing but did anybody try and figure that part out why why their their skin would lose that pigmentation well, of course, it was believed. I mean, there were stories of people who'd been to Fairyland and come back. And there was the whole thing of, you mustn't eat while you're there or you'll be trapped there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and um, you know, the magical imputation of, uh, that, uh, you know, was put onto, onto food in, in, in this context. What is very interesting, though, is that the boy died of depression shortly after his christening. Green beans contain a compound called tyramine, which accentuates melancholia. Um, people, people who are depressives are strongly urged not to eat them. Um, and uh, that was what he died of. This is another interesting little detail in the thing. But, um, of course, people trying to interpret this story more recently, they're kind of coming up with all sorts of exotic explanations like uh, 
and you know, genetic engineering. You, know, you wouldn't believe how many different explanations there are, including a completely fictitious disease called uh, chlorosis, um, which was actually a catch-all name in the early industrial revolution for conditions like anorexia. Yeah, it was something that affected young women and hmm. put them off the food. Yeah, nobody had a patient who turned green. They all knew somebody who knew somebody. Who, yeah. <laughs> but of course, the green calling it the green disease uh, was also called the virgin's disease. It was a metaphor for sexual inexperience. Um, the uh, but in R Ralph's chronicle, the difference between the two chronicles is that William sought out and interviewed witnesses to the, the children's arrival. He was really concerned about this story. He didn't believe it was a miracle, and he was trying to prove that it wasn't and, and couldn't. But he said, I have been convinced by so many witnesses and witnesses of such quality that I believe that this really happened. But that's the, the level at which he was investigating the story. Whereas well, uh, Ralph Coggeshall, knew uh, Richard de Calna in his old age and his, and his family and was talking about the green girl, formerly green girl, living with the de Calnas as an adult. Um, and at that, in that phase, when she was asked about the green colour, what she said in exactly those words was that it was vegetable dye. She didn't explain why. But she said all the people in the country that she came from were dyed with that same color, which was the same color as the plants. And, well, it gets interesting when you start to think about that. We're, we're jumping ahead of ourselves a bit, but I think I know what she's talking about. Yeah. Um, because what we seem to be looking at here putting it all together. The children were unquestionably human. The boy, the boy died young, but she grew up, married, and had children. And she had two sons. I've traced the line of descent from one of them right down to the present. Um, interestingly enough, one of her descendants was deputy leader of the House of Lords under Margaret Thatcher. Oh, wow. And he thought... And he thought it was fascinating. He said, I knew my ancestors were colorful, but not that colorful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and yet, they are talking about a colony on, we only get very, very few bits of description, but that is what they're talking about. They're talking about a colony of terrestrial life in some kind of experimental situation on another planet. Um, there's some, it partly explains the, the very strong taboo that they had against eating and anything they didn't recognize. Because if it, if, it wasn't, uh, if it wasn't terrestrial, it probably wouldn't be good for you at all. But when I, was, when I was trying to figure out what the significance of the green color could be, I read uh, Richard Dawkins' book, A River Out of Eden, which has a chapter on predator eyesight. And the interesting thing there is that predator's eyesight is very closely adapted to their specific prey and the circumstances in which they, they hunt for it. And fam famously, the, the frog will starve to death surrounded by, by dead flies because it can only respond to them if they're moving. But um, great cats, for instance, have preferred times of day at which they hunt. And their eyes are adjusted to the eye the light level at that time. And it's, it's even more extreme with polar bears, which have to eat when they come out of hibernation. And their eyesight is specialized for that, that time of year in those conditions. So if there's something that's crossing the river, adap adapted to permanent, permanent sunlight, and it comes into a country, country of permanent twilight on the other side of the river, if the people are dyed the same color as the plants, does it find them hard to see? It could just be as simple as that. Hmm. And, uh, I, I, and given that that's what she actually said, she said it was dyed, uh, it almost certainly was.
Now, when Robert was doing research on these children, um, I mean, they came out of the ground. Was there any, did he find any indication that there was a, a maybe a crashed uh, vessel of any kind or a meteor or something that would have carried them here? Well, they were asked in the, in the hearing how, how, how they came. And again, uh, this, is, this is, I think, both fascinating and very important. The girl replied, we don't know, um, which I suspect wasn't true. But she said, we were out with our father's livestock on a certain day. And this is almost the only part of the narrative that is in the same words in both chronicles. Normally, where you get a miraculous event in medieval chronicles, they just copy one another and it might be more or less detailed, but the wording's always the same. But um, as I said, William and Ralph were telling the story from different viewpoints and with different vocabulary. Um, and there's no collusion, no sign of collusion or copying. Um, but this bit is the same. This bit about being out with the livestock on a certain day, as if it was a day on which they sh shouldn't have been out with the livestock. And consequently, this mis misfortune happened to them. And she then said, we heard a great sound of bells like the sound of the bells of Bury St. Edmunds. And she's quite definite that she is not saying we heard the bells of Bury St. Edmunds. And again, a lot of, a lot of modern translations just delight this. But no, she's quite definite they heard the sound like the bells of Bury St. Edmunds, which they've now been taught to recognize. Um, and then, suddenly, as if placed in some absence of mind, we found ourselves in the field where you were reaping. It's an instantaneous transition, but the really, to my mind, fascinating thing about it is that not only does this kid not have, not only does this kid know what amnesia is, she knows she hasn't got it. Suddenly, as if placed in some absence of mind, um, she's definitely from uh, an advanced community. She's educated. the 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 idea that these are prim primitive children from a run runaways from a tribe in the wood who turned green due to eating raw, raw, raw berries, you know, it, it will not it will not stand up to examination. Um, especially not when you begin to discover that the amount of interest that the king and other people were taking in the case. So, um, yeah, the, the, whole, the whole picture that starts to emerge here is of abductions by extraterrestrials for experimental purposes with the knowledge, if not the active connivance of the, at least some of the terrestrial authorities. I mentioned that it appears that the, the hearing was rehearsed and conducted for someone else's benefit. Those were almost certainly observers from Rome. The Pope was taking an interest in the matter. Henry II, it turns out, had already annexed the village, taken it out of the control of Bury St. Edmund's Abbey on the excuse that he had a poor clerk who needed its income of £10 a year. But he put it in the charge of the richest man in the country who was his deputy vice-chancellor, a chunk called Geoffrey Riddle, who, whose responsibilities included entertaining foreign royalty at his own expense when they visited England. And he, this was a man who thought nothing in those days of spending £10,000 on a banquet. Um, he was not stuck for a tenner a year from Wilpert. But a schoolmaster called, called Samson went, from Bury St. Edmunds to Rome, supposedly to complain about the matter, which again, when you when you actually talk to medieval historians and you tell them the story, they say, oh, that would never happen. Nobody would take that chance. Um, but that's supposedly what he did. And he came back and told the, the monks in Bury St. Edmunds that he'd got an order that the king was to return the village to them. But that letter actually survives in the archives of Bury St. Edmunds Abbey. And it's not addressed to the king, it's addressed to the abbot. And what it says is, concerning the church of St. Mary Woolpit, and by implication the village, 
I have ordered that the king is to give it back to you when he shall have finished with it. Which is quite a different matter because it shows you that the Pope is taking an interest in this case. Um, something very big is going on. And, um, yeah, as, as I say, the more you go into it, the, the more fascinating it becomes. Yeah. I, Maybe time to talk. Right. Yeah. Well, to you. It's, it's just, the more you talk about it, the more it's apparent that, that authorities higher up knew something that the common people didn't, which is a very common aspect of today as well. No, it's time to, I think, to tell you about Richard de Calma. He's extremely hard to trace. And most modern accounts of this story just assume that he was a, the local landlord, the squire of the village or what have you. Mm. Um, if they go into it any further, Ralph Coggeshall describes him as a sort of knight. And uh, um, people just tend to leap then, especially because they, can, they can't trace him. To, they tend to leap to the conclusion that he was a, a masterless knight, you know, a sword for hire, basically. Mm. Um, but not a bit of it. Um, it turns out, first of all, that Richard de Calna was much older than most modern accounts of it. Glenn, Ma Glenn Maxwell's play about the, the good children, for instance, has, has a not much older than the girl himself, herself. It turns out um, the first record of Richard de Calna is as early as 1116, um, and he he was adult by by that time. Um, so he's got to be he's got to be quite an old man by the time this incident happened. And from the various clues that we've got, it looks as if the, it actually happened at 1173. Um, you can yeah, it took me quite a while to pin it down, but that's that's the the date that I'm, I'm pinning it on. Um, so, um, sorry, um, I've got that slightly wrong. He was born in 1116. He was, at the age of majority then was 14, so he was adult by 1130, which is where he starts to appear in the records. And uh, he had quite a, quite a, there are big gaps, even so, in the, in the record of him. But at the end of the civil war between King, King Stephen and the Empress Matilda, when Henry II acceded to the throne, he restarted uh, the financial records of the kingdom as a system that had been begun, interestingly enough, by Richard de Calna's great uncle. The, the de Calnas were very powerful churchmen. Um, Richard de Calna's grandfather had been chaplain to William the Conqueror. His great uncle was Chancellor of England and Regent to Henry I. His father was the Bishop of Ely in his later life. His uncle was the Bishop of Norwich. Uh, his half-brother was the Bishop of London after the guy we were talking about before. And it goes on like that. Um, it, and yet, de Calna was a sort of knight. Specifically, he had uh, quite, at least at least eight, probably, uh, it would appear to be 15 and possibly even more knights in service to him, which makes him a vavasur, intermediate between a knight and a baron. Um, there is also considerable circumstantial evidence that he was at least an associate knight templar, because he lived next door to the head of the templars in England, and they, are, uh, they were in close contact. That's various indications of that. Um, but at the end of the Civil War, when the records restart, in the very first paragraph of the very first rule, what you find is that the Master of the Templars and the Richard de Calna are hereafter excused all taxes in perpetuity because of their outstanding service to the King. And this makes this makes Decana invisible. He um, he only appears for the next what are we talking about? The next thirty odd years of his life. He only appears when he occasionally visit 
witnesses a charter when one of his family is giving something to the church. Um, he's, he's the head of the Secret Service, he's M. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, and this is the man that the villagers took the children to, crossing the land of two even more senior barons to get to him, which again tells you that they knew where they were going. Um, this, this, this had been set up. It took, it took a while to kick in, but clearly what was supposed to happen was that if anything strange happened in Wilderness, um, the, the De Kalna should be should be notified, and he, he he would contact the master of the Templars, who would contact the king. Um, Henry II's response to this is again something which that amazes me. Nobody else has noticed. Eleven seventy three was the year in which Henry's queen. And all of his sons, except John, who didn't have the bottle for it, rebelled against him with the backing of the kings of Scotland and the king of France. And France controlled Flanders, so they declared war as well. Half of the barons in England were on their side and just waiting to see which way to jump, which way it would turn out. But Leicester should open and rebelled. Henry was in a load of trouble. And in the middle of defending Normandy from the initial attacks from, from France, at the, end, at the end of July of 1173, he suddenly breaks off from the action, rushes across the channel, and disappears for four days. There's no record of where he went or what he did, um, but his expenses were met out of, out of the budget for East Anglia. And what happened immediately afterwards was that he put a garrison of crack troops into, into the castle next to Woolpit, and those troops were Templars. Um, all of it implies that, they, as I say, they were expecting something very big to happen, um, and that this uh, revelation of the, the children was a sign that something big was going to happen. And in fact, it did. What did happen was that the Earl of Leicester, who had fled the country, invaded East Anglia at the head of a Flemish army. He was told by his ally, the Baron of Norfolk and Suffolk, about the crack garrison at, Wool at Woolpit and turned aside to neutralize that threat, which gave the massed armies of England and Ireland time to muster and wipe out Lester and his, well, not Lester himself, he was taken for ransom, but wipe out his army where they stood. So it must have seemed to Henry as if the green children had come to save the kingdom. Because from then on, everything went his way. The war was over in months. And hence, telling the Bishop of London to get them christened when he was notified that the boy was dying. The way it all fits together is obviously circumstantial. But it turns into one hell of a story, as the late, as the late John Braithwaite said. If you if you if it's not extraterrestrial contact, you've got the political thriller of all time. Huh. Now, did anybody ever speculate where what planet the children might have come from? Well, there isn't a planet in the solar system with transportation. We used to think Mercury had, but it. It doesn't have trapped, it trapped with respect to the sun, at least. Mm. So we are definitely talking about outside the solar system. In any case, it's an Earth-sized Earth world with a breathable atmosphere, but it's keeping the same face towards towards the sun. And at the time when I was doing all of this and writing the book, um, it was thought that planets, Earth-like planets with trapped rotations wouldn't normally be, be habitable, not naturally so anyway. So I got together a bunch of people uh, with uh, Scotland's National Space Flight Society um, and we did what science fiction writers call world building. We took the elements of description such as they are out of the two chronicles and worked out a, a plausible model for a planet that would fit the bill. And the idea that we came up with was a planet which would be a, roughly the size of Earth because the, when the children came here, they were able to run 
they ran from the harvesters to chase them. Um, so the, the gravity is not, not significantly different. But um, we reckoned it would probably have a, an atmosphere, a, fairly, a, a pretty thin atmosphere like Mars, and in super rotation like the atmosphere of Venus, going around faster than the planet itself. And there would be an artificially created valley along the terminator of the planet, the light, dividing line between light and dark. Um, and interestingly enough, the shadowed side of that valley, the twilight zone, would be the side nearer the sun in that, in that situation. And we worked out in uh, quite a lot of detail how the atmosphere circulation would work and generally what the conditions would be. Now we have apparently got a planet orbiting Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to us, which fits the bill. It is at least Earth-sized, and from, the, from its orbital characteristics, it must have a trapped rotation. And whether it has an atmosphere remains to be seen, but let's face it, if we had known about that Proxima Centauri planet when we were doing the exercise, we would just taken that as being it. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching developments there, the European Southern Observatories looking very hard at that planet, and they uh, most interesting to see what they discover. Now, was the, was the boy and girl, were they siblings? They're described as being siblings. Um, that might just have been an assumption, but uh, but on the other hand, both in both chronicles they talk about their father's livestock. So yeah, they probably they, they probably were. Okay. And curiously enough, they never say what the, the livestock is. It's, again, it's one of the few words that's com common to both chronicles. It's just pecara, which just means animals, living creatures. Could be anything. It's most often used of pigs, but it could be it could be sheep or goats or cattle or even even um, flocks of birds or uh, or uh, shoals of fish or or even people in the sense that today we talk about the common herd. Um, but whatever they were, apparently they described these animals. They're assuming they were that's what they were, they were animals. And the chroniclers didn't recognize them, uh, which leads to some interesting speculations about llamas, for instance, which nobody, nobody knew about then. Um, <laughs> maybe the language they spoke that nobody recognized was Quechua. <laughs> yeah. Because the Incas came out of a hole in the ground in Peru round about the same time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the one thing that I was thinking is, um, you'd said the girl grew up and uh, mm -hmm. the boy died shortly after. Now, did she ever talk about this like later on in life about her, her and her brother coming here or any, anything a part of about her life before coming out of the hole in the ground? This is what this is infuriating. Willem of Newborough says in so many words, they gave many more details of the land that they came from to those who were inclined to be curious, but it would be tedious to set them down here. <laughs> you old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but of course his point was he was only looking for was this a miracle or wasn't it? Mm. He saw himself as a ghostbuster. This was, this was the age in which, as I've said in the book, if, you, if the church confirmed that you'd had a miracle on, you, on your patch, it was like having the U.S. Air Force leave you with a, run, a runway that could take jumbo jets. You, you were on the tourist trail, mm. um, and it was a sure source of money. Um, William believed there was too much of this going on, and in the opening chapter of his chronicle, he announces that he's going to do his best to dispose of um, stories that aren't genuine. 
And in the end, he comes down on just four. He says, he says before, in quite a sense of humor, dry sense of humor, uh, he, he prefaces it with a, a story about the young King Malcolm of Scots, who apparently was um, very religious and unworldly. And his mother particularly was concerned that he wasn't paying enough attention to his duties as regards carrying on um, eventually to produce an heir to the throne. So a young woman of good family was persuaded to take his education in hand in this, this matter. And retiring to his bedchamber for the night, young Malcolm found her there and asked her what her business was. And when she told him, he consigned her to his bed and went into his chapel and spent the night in prayer. And indeed, when the girl was examined in the morning, she was still Virgo intacta. And William Numera says, let each man say of this what he will. And this is one of his favorite expressions. But to this writer, the preservation of a young king's virginity when so sorely besieged is to be accounted a greater miracle than healing the sick or even raising the dead. (laughs) And with that attitude, he he approaches all all of these miraculous events that are supposedly arising around the country and to his satisfaction cuts down the list to just four, starting with the green children. But it bothers him, and he prefaces it by saying, I had severe doubts about including this, because he can't see the point of it. Miracles are supposed to illustrate some point of scripture, and he just can't see what the point of this one is. But he's interviewed so many witnesses, and witnesses of such quality, that he's become convinced that it's happened, and eventually, and eventually he said, well, it's not for me to question God's purpose, uh, just because I can't understand it. So here's the story. He then goes on to three other stories which he's not been able to disprove, but are more or less standard fairy tales. And then he comes back to the green children at the end of the section, and he says, but as for those green uh, children that came out of the ground, he says, "Um, I just cannot understand it. I don't know what the point of that is. He says, let each man say of this what he will, and account for these things as best he may, but it does not grieve me to have set down this most strange and wonderful event. So, um, yeah, he, he, he wasn't looking for what we would be looking for. The, detail, the details of the children's world um, just weren't of interest to him. This is very frustrating. Yeah. You keep hoping somebody will find his notes, but it's, it's not likely now. Now, in the book, you you speculate that this may suggest that there was mass abductions done on Earth by extraterrestrials to experiment on us. And I'm assuming they would have sent us, since the kids looked human, to another planet to see how we would react. Correct? Yeah. Yes. This, um, this model that we've come up with, which is, of course, speculative, but goes along with the, the what little information we do have. Um, uh, along the, along the, the, the river valley r- running through the chain of craters on the, on the terminator of, of this world, which has been terraformed, or at least the twilight zone of it has, um, it looks as if you've got different forms of life from different worlds interacting just to see what will happen. And... Uh, um, um, it's not a particularly kindly operation, I would, I, I, I would say. They're, they're not respecters of human rights, who's behind this. Um, but uh, that's, that's really what it looks like. There's a whole bit about, um, about the taboo on eating anything you don't recognize, which is very strong. It's, uh, children nearly starve to death because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, and the bit about the green the green color and all the people being dyed with that color. And um, I think these clues are giving giving you some idea of what's going on. Well, the the one uh, 
quotation that I love from the back of the book is the X-Files are set in the wrong century. Yeah, because that's what it is. It's the X-Files plot, isn't it? Yeah. Abduction, abductions for experimental purposes with the knowledge of some of the terrestrial authorities. Right. Well, yeah. and I mean, there's, I mean, a lot of uh, theories and speculation and, and conspiracy theories out there that it's still going on today. I see no sign of it. Um, the uh, thing that we haven't really gone into is is how the matter transmitter works. Um, and when I when I was looking into into all of this, one of the things that I came across was the um, work of a chap called John Eddy, who had been looking at uh, tree rings and ice cores and accumulating the evidence for variations in the sun over the last few thousand years. And um, it turns out that the 12th century saw the most active solar activity since the Bronze Age. And particularly, there was a huge spike of it in 1173, which ties in with the circumstantial historical evidence we've got from the, the children's arrival. So I went to a physicist friend and I said to him, Imagine a matter transmitter which at one end has a, a planet with a trapped rotation going around its sun, tumbling very slowly on its axis and presumably with no magnetic field. And at this end you've got the Earth with the magnetic field being seriously disturbed by changes on the sun and huge auroral displays going on and magnetic storms and, and all of that. I said, in that situation, can you... Imagine what's going on and why, why, why this device is apparently going off by accident. And he said, oh yes, if you tell me what makes it go wrong, I can figure out how it works. And came back with a description, which obviously is super science by today's standards involving wormholes and quantum scanners. Um, but he, he said, uh, yeah, this, this would fit the case. Um, so, looking at it, the question that you come down to is, are the, are the matter transmitters being enabled by the disturbances on the sun, or are they causing them? Which comes, which comes first? One way or another, they paused in the uh, 13th century, and then there was another burst of solar activity, and then they stopped altogether, and the northern hemisphere of the Earth went into the Little Ice Age. And that seems to also to have been the end of incidents associated with this story. I probably need to enlarge on that. Um, obviously, people said to me, medieval chronicles are full of these kind of events. You can't put any store by it. So I set out to find out if that was true or not. And what I discovered was that there are actually comparatively few incidents of people appearing and disappearing. And some that, some that there were were obviously just stories of fairies and witches and could be, could be disregarded. But the ones that were left all had the, the same kind of factual detail that you could pursue in the way that I pursued the Green Children Inquiry. And what I discovered was that the places where these events took place were physically related um, because they lay in corridors due north-south, narrow bands north-south, lying across, well, up and down um, the British Isles, and one of them right down into France, where there were incidents of the same kind. Um, and a friend of mine called Andy Nimmo came up with a very interesting suggestion that what we're looking at here is the valley, which runs north to south on the colony world, mapped onto the Earth's surface. And, of course, you could have parallel bands like that. And in, in this case, it seems as if we do. But looking at the history of these various sites over the, over the period, at first glance, you would think it's just the general Brownian movement of medieval property because that was how you moved up and down the ladder, was by exchanging property with other people. Hmm. 
But what is actually happening, if you, if you do it as a spreadsheet, is that these different sites are actually changing hands among just six families, and particularly three families at the, at the core of it. And there's always somebody um, in one of those three families or, or closely related to them in charge at each of these sites. So it looks as if there's, 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 more, there's more going on. In other words, it's not just Wolpe. Um, that's just one terminus. Um, but it all stops in probably 1366. There's one isolated incident in 1402 that might be part of it. But after, after that, I haven't, I haven't been able to find anything. Um, but we were going into a very long period when the sun was inactive, um, followed by another burst of activity around about Galileo's time, and then an even, long, even longer period called the Mondo Minimum, which lasted well into the 19th century. So maybe that is telling us that the sun actually has to be disturbed to generate the kind of energy that triggers the matter transmitter. Um, or maybe something else happened, and maybe they just felt the experiment had run its course and shut the door. Um, but I can't, I can't see any sign of it going on beyond those dates. Hmm. I have looked, and I'm still looking. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, that, w that would make sense how uh, extraterrestrials could get here and back without light travel speed because they would have to have a transportation system of some kind. Uh, yeah. And that what you're saying actually makes a lot of sense that the sun activity would be the effect they needed for the machine to work. Yeah. Um, as I said, my, with my help of my physicist friend, we worked out in a fair amount of detail how it would um, mission control is on a space station, probably orbiting the colony world, um, so they can vary the gravity um, or simulated gravity. And then it, to open different portals, all you have to do is set the, set the electric charge to the right value. Um, so it is very simple, and you could, you could have a device that could be worn and disguised as a piece of jewelry and trigger it a portal and you can just step through walk from one world to the other but because of that simplicity it could be vulnerable to going off by accident and um, uh, yeah, it, it all seems to fit hmm. it's all speculation it's all well, it's all we can do but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but man, it is one heck of a story yeah well, we are coming to the end of the show, so I want to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can find you, find your books, any information you want to give out. It's all yours. Oh, thanks. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm a science writer living in Scotland, as uh, I've probably gathered from the, from the accent of nothing else. Uh, uh, my website is www.duncanlunan.com, and uh, that's the best way to get in touch with me is through that. You'll also find there the details of Children from the Sky, which is a, a paraphrase of, uh, the title is a paraphrase, obviously, of uh, Robert Burton's uh, Children That Fell from the Sky. Um, and uh, it's published by Motus Lover in Edinburgh. Um, you can order it through bookstores or through Amazon um, or directly from the publishers. Um, I get a bit more money if you order it directly from the publisher, so please feel free. And you'll, you'll also find the details of my other books. I've had nine books published altogether, um, and I've contributed to three dozen others. So there's, there's uh, lots of my other work to look for. Um, and uh, if you're in Scotland, you can, you can find me in Truden, which is where I grew up, and my wife and I have... Uh, I'm living here again uh, in my in my 70s now, um, and we run the Astronomers of the Future Club in June, which is uh, which meets once a month at the end of the month, and always glad to see people there. And uh, I think that's most of it. Um, glancing across at the boss to see if she can think of anything I haven't said, but she's shaking she's shaking her head. I think that's that's about it. <laughs> so www uh, DuncanLunan.com and uh, just click on Children from the Sky. 
And if you've been looking at the stuff about the supposed Black Knight satellite on the internet, with which my name has been mixed up for a long time, it has nothing to do with me, and you will find the truth about it on there too. <laughs> All right. Well, Duncan Lunan, thank you so much for being on Beyond Reason. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I've enjoyed it. All right, folks. That was Duncan Lunan, author of Children from the Sky. Uh, definitely check out the book and check out DuncanLunan.com. And I highly recommend it because it's got a lot more information in the book than what we covered here. So uh, definitely check that all out. Uh, also make sure you're checking out beyondreason.net and you can also find my shows on Conflict Radio on YouTube. And that's all I got for you tonight. So until next week, keep those minds open. This is Justin Cancellari signing off. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.